All right, good morning. We're in 1 Samuel 2, if you are going to follow along either on your Bible app or in a paper Bible, they still exist. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 2. So last week, like Victor said, we looked at the first chapter and a half about how God is the king behind the scenes in the midst of all of these different things, um, the ups and downs of life. And now we want to keep going into this story. Um, last Sunday, we had student ministry and we showed the students the Bible Project intro video to 1 Samuel. If you've never seen the Bible Project overview videos, they're really well done. Um, they're probably the, the best videos uh, that I've seen in terms of introducing Old Testament, New Testament introduction. Really helpful if you're new to the Bible. And one of the things they mentioned in the Bible Project video was that there's this theme throughout First and Second Samuel of God bringing down the proud and raising up the humble. And so we see this in Hannah's prayer, which we looked at last week. She says, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of, pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. And so like I said, we see this theme in First and Second Samuel about how God will bring the proud low, and he, brings the, he exalts the humble. And we see this when David fights Goliath, that proud Goliath is brought low, humble David is exalted. We see how God brings proud Saul low, raises up a king after his own heart. We saw it even last week with Penina as God brought her low and he elevated Hannah, humble Hannah. And today we're going to see much of the same, right? We're going to see this idea that God predicts ruin for the proud while increasingly positioning the humble to be leaders in Israel. And when we think about it this way, Jesus, he said these much these same principles, right? The fact that the way that people led is not like, shouldn't be like the Gentiles lead, the way they lead with, with proud, arrogant um, aggression, but instead it's the humble heart that God wants to exalt. And so, as I was thinking about what this passage in 1 Samuel um, 2, 12 to 36, what kept coming to my mind was actually Galatians chapter 6, where God says, um, God will not be mocked as a man sows, that will he reap. And so, as we're going through this passage today, I really want you to think about that idea of reaping and sowing. That what can we learn from the characters in this story? What are they sowing and what will they reap? And what should we sow that we might reap? What do these things teach us about parenting, about spiritually parenting, raising up the next generation of disciples? As you guys know, one of our focuses of this year is, is multiplication, trying to equip you guys, empower you, and encourage you to go out and, and choose a few people that you want to invest in, in the midst of the mess, in the midst of your imperfections, to pass on what you have received faithfully. And so let's read 1 Samuel 2. Beginning in verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men, scoundrels, it says in the, New Test in the NIV. They did not know the Lord. Now the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come, and while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, 
Before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, and he will, he will not accept boiled meat from you, only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, they would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of God with contempt. So this first section is really setting the stage for us. And for those of you who are new to the Old Testament, I would encourage you guys, you can go back. We preached a whole year through Leviticus. And so some of these difficulties might make more sense if you were a little bit more well-tuned with those laws. But basically, what I want you to know is that Eli's sons were worthless. They were scoundrels. I mean, he tells us right off the bat. They were religious in their duties, executing the sacrificial system, but their heart is far from God. Matter of fact, the author says they did not know God, but they were still performing religious duties. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. This actually has been the norm um, throughout history. We see this, in, for example, in Europe, when it was a good job if you could be a pastor or a priest. And so people would go into ministry because it was the right course of action for their pocketbook, not because their heart was actually connected to the Lord at all. And that's what we see here with Eli's sons. They knew the priestly duties, but it was all of a charade for them. Now, Jesus says later, he says, you will know false teachers, you will know false prophets, you will know false shepherds, uh, you know, a metaphor that God uses throughout the Bible to refer to these leaders, these priests, you will know them by their fruit. In other words, you will be able to look at their lives and you will be able to know whether or not these people are actually good leaders or not, whether they're pointing to Christ or they're not. And for a lot of people who I meet, they say, well, I don't believe in Christianity. And when you push and you ask why, it's really because they've had terrible experiences with people. So in other words, they met someone like Eli's sons and they projected and extrapolated that must be what God is like. But he's not. These men are crooked. They're corrupt. They're scoundrels. They exploit the priestly position for personal gain. God says that they violate the sacred offerings. You see, when offering a sacrifice, the fat is supposed to be burnt on the altar as a, as a form of worship to the Lord. And the portions for the priests and the worshipers are prepared for a second meal. So they would burn the fat, and then they would partition it. The priest would get some, and the family who brought the offering would also get some to eat. That's in Leviticus chapter 7. You can read about that. But Eli's sons, they're not content with, with, a, with a good ribeye that has had the fat burned off, right? They don't want a lean cut of meat. They don't want 93%, right? They want 80% beef. That's what they want. They want the fat. They know that the fat tastes the best, okay? I know some of you guys don't realize that, but it's true, okay? And so they're dissatisfied with their portion, and so what they do is they go with their fork, and they, they look for the best part, and they pull it out, and they say, oh, lucky me. Look what I got. But their greed is impacting everybody around them. See, these, although the priests weren't allowed to eat the fat, these guys didn't care. Let's continue. Now we get a contrast in this next section, 1 Samuel 2.18. Now Samuel, who's the boy who was given by Hannah last week, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. He was a boy, 
clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe, how cute, and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would, would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord so they would return to their home. And indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the Lord grew in the presence, or the, and Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now, when you're reading the Bible, if you're new to reading the Bible, one of the things you always want to be on the lookout for is contrasts especially when you read the narratives, right? This is a very obvious contrast. You have Eli, who's the current priest in charge, and his sons. And now you, in the previous chapter, you had had Hannah, and this son she lent to the Lord. And so the author is drawing a a contrast here between Eli's sons and Samuel. And so we see this, that as they continue to grow in their wickedness, Samuel's family continues to come and worship every year. God hears their prayers for more kids. He answers their prayers. And as Eli's sons grow in wickedness, we see Hannah, who I said last week, whose name means favor or grace. She continues to grow in favor as her son also grows in favor in the presence of the Lord. Now, one of the things that I want you guys to realize, I don't, most of the kids, I think, left, but I want to tell you parents as well, Samuel is serving the Lord even as a child, even as a child. You know, when you think about the fact that Daniel, when he was um, relocated to Babylon and he became one of the king's wise men, was probably 14, 15 years old, we have developed a culture where we have allowed boys to grow up and be 30 years old and never become men. It's disgusting, if we can call it what it is. The bottom line is your age is not an excuse for anything. There's no junior Holy Spirit. It's not like you get a different version of the Holy Spirit when you are old enough to vote or when you're old enough to go buy alcohol. That's not how it works. The Holy Spirit that lives within a child who is a follower of Christ is the same Holy Spirit that dwells within the Apostle Paul, that dwells within me, that dwells within you. It's the very Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And so we should expect our children that they can have great faith and that the Lord can use them in miraculous big ways disproportionate to their youth. And so let's empower our young people, not hold them back. Samuel is serving the Lord. He's not using his age as an excuse to not take God seriously. This is one of the reasons why we as a church need to equip and empower others so intentionally. Continuing in verse 22, now Eli was very old. He was like in his 90s, I think one commentary I read said. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how it gets even worse, how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Eek. So while God is visiting Hannah with favor, he's visiting Eli with warnings. What a contrast. 
Eli, their father, the high priest, he hears about their evil deeds, the evil deeds of his sons. And we have to say, did he really not know for all these years? Did he really not know? Did he really think his kid was, you know, the the best priest around? It says that all of Israel knew. All of Israel knew what? They knew that these guys were jerks, that they leveraged their position of power for exploitation and sexual crime. Think about that. This is what was known about Eli's sons. This was the reputation that Eli's sons had in the community. According to the law, they not only you know, deserved to be removed from their job, they deserved to be stoned. They deserved to be killed. Eli does rebuke them, but he fails to take any corrective action over their behavior. I mean, I think it's not too far of a stretch to suggest that here's a dad who isn't exactly knocking it out of the park. Even if he's a good guy, something is off. Like the fact that he doesn't have the guts to say the hard things and then follow through on it with his adult sons, who should know better by now. But he does say something that is right on, and it's um, what we would say is a signpost that's pointing forward to Jesus. He says, who will intercede between God and man? You know, the whole role of the priest was to be this mediator between God and man so that a sinful people could live in the presence of a holy God. Well, what about when the priest is the one who needs intercession before a holy God? That's why they had the sacrificial system. But this looks forward that you realize the priest needs someone too. It's not enough. 1 Samuel 2, 26 Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Again, contrast, another contrast. While Eli's sons go from bad to worse, Samuel continues to grow and become great. Growing in stature means that he's growing physically. He's growing up and growing in favor means that he's growing spiritually, okay? If you want an action principle here, pray this for your kids. You don't know how to pray for your kids? Sometimes you don't know how to pray for your kids. Or your spiritual kids, if you're leading people you're discipling, you can always pray this, that they would grow both in stature and favor with the Lord. See, but what's really happening here, the, the, the core aspect of this of this passage is that we see God is raising up Eli's replacement. And it's not one of Eli's sons because there's no spiritual dynasties here um, with this this scenario, right? doesn't mean that just because I'm pastor doesn't mean my kids are gonna take over the church after me and my grandkids and, and revolve becomes Bill's dynasty. No, God's gonna raise up men for himself, women for himself who are faithful unto the Lord. And that's what God is doing right here with Samuel. Let's read this last section, verse 27 to 36. And there came a man of God to Eli. It says in the NIV, and a certain man came. I love it when God sends certain people to do awesome things. Nameless people. We need more nameless people and less people who have Twitter accounts and all that kind of stuff. There came a man of God to Eli. He didn't even have a blue check next to his name. And he said to him, thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel? And he says four things. To be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me. 
I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons above me? by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. That in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. In other words, he's saying, then you will look to repent and it will be too late, bro. That's what he's saying. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of his house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hopni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you both. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointing. Forever, and everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Happy Father's Day, Eli, to you. Wow. This is the judgment that Eli gets spoken over him by this prophet, this nameless prophet. God is phasing Eli out. That's what's going on. And he's rebuked because he has not taken the priestly responsibility seriously. And the reality is that the priestly responsibility is a privilege. Okay, look at those four things. One, to be my priest. See, this signifies being appointed as a mediator between God and the people. It was a privilege to be able to conduct religious ritual and uphold sacred law and represent God to the people and the people to God. Two, to go up to my altar. That it was a privilege of the priest to draw near to God. We take this for granted because we live in the new covenant. In other words, the post-Jesus, okay? We live in this new covenant, this New Testament time period, this post-Jesus time period where we can worship God in spirit and in truth from here, from there, in a house, you know, with a mouse, in a box, with a fox. You can worship God anywhere, okay, in spirit and in truth, but they had to go up to the altar. The privilege of the priest to be able to go up to the altar to worship God and seek his favor. What a privilege. Privilege to burn incense representing the acts of prayer and worship that would continually rise up in the tabernacle to the Lord, symbolizing the the ascent of God's people's prayers to God's presence in his throne room. To wear an ephod before me, signifying the high priest's authority and divine appointment that set him apart from everybody else. It is a privilege. And what the scripture says here is it says, why do you treat it with scorn, Eli? Scorn, if you look at that word in the original language, it means to kick the way an animal tries to buck out of a yoke. 
He's saying, I've given you a privilege and you're over here trying to buck out of this yoke like it's a burden. That's what he's saying to him. But this is what I want you to see. It's not just that Eli is lazy. It's not that Eli is old and he's like, look, I'm old. Like, what do you want? I'm 96 years old. That's not what's going on. It says that he has disdain for the things of God. Why? Because you honor your sons above me. Parents, I'm going to be honest, especially moms. My wife goes, oh, (laughs) especially moms. Do not make your children into idols. Your kids are really bad gods and they will not fill the place of the Lord on high. And it is easy, and I think it's true because you gave birth to this child, it's really easy to look to your kid as if they should fill a role and a void that only Jesus Christ can fill. And then when your kids grow up and they move away or they don't live down the street, you feel crushed because you've built your entire world around an idol that you can't control. It's a warning. It's a warning to us. The only risk-free relationship in life is the relationship with your Lord and Savior. Don't make your kids into idols. Don't honor your children above the Lord. Now, you contrast that with Hannah. What does Hannah do with her son? She lends him to the Lord. She receives this son and she says, I give this son back to you. He was never mine to begin with anyway. I mean, she knew it above everybody else. She couldn't open her womb. The Lord gave her a son and she gave him back. Good parenting is stewardship, not idolatry. If you don't remember anything else, remember that. Good parenting, whether it's physical parenting or spiritual parenting, good parenting is stewardship. Give your kid back to the Lord, not idolatry. Your child is not your God. The one who is spared, he says, I'm going to spare one. Yeah, that looks forward to 1 Kings many years later with a priest named Abiathar, who's ultimately replaced by a new household called Zadok, which is a pretty cool name. But basically what God says is, look, I'm going to kill your kids. I'm going to kill your sons. You've made them into an idol. Now I'm going to crush those idols. And you're going to know I'm speaking the truth because they're going to die on the same day. And that's what we have to look forward to in 1 Samuel. And so here's the picture in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Eli's family's going down. Samuel's family is on the rise. And so what do we learn, big picture, from this? Or well, I think we learn... Six, like I said earlier, Galatians 6, 7 really summarizes well, 7 and 8. And this is what Galatians 6, 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Look, who is God? God is righteous and just. And just because God doesn't immediately drop the wrath hammer doesn't mean he doesn't care. It doesn't mean he's not bothered by it. We see God's patience as time to repent. But don't be deceived. God is not mocked. 
Just because the world doesn't know, just because your spouse doesn't know, just because your kids don't know, God knows. He's not an idiot. He's not mocked. And he does value obedience and reverence. That yes, God is merciful and gracious. Those are the first two words that he uses to describe himself in Exodus 34. He is merciful, not giving us what we do deserve. He's gracious, giving us what we don't deserve. But he also desires obedience, faithfulness, reverence. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we see in 1 Samuel and throughout the Bible that God exalts the humble and he lays low the proud. And so what do we do with it? Again, we go back to Galatians 6. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Eli's sons face severe consequence for their disobedience. Why? Because they have a lifetime of sowing to the flesh, sowing to the flesh, sowing to the flesh, sowing to the flesh. And eventually, just as promised, they will reap corruption and they will reap judgment. You see, it's easy sometimes to look out on the world and say, Lord, how long, how long before these people out in the world who hate your name, who do terrible things, how long before you come and you right all of these wrongs, Lord? Remember that God is not out of the loop as Eli supposedly was. That God sees it and he knows. But to the one who sows the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. The alternative to sowing the flesh, sowing the flesh, sowing the flesh, and then being shocked when we reap corruption is to sow to the Spirit, to sow faithfulness, to sow humility, to sow a heart that is fixed on God. Samuel is contrasted with the sons of Eli as one who is growing in stature, is growing in the right heart. And that kind of life in God's economy reaps blessing. And so uh, let's get a couple tips here for parenting. And I mean parenting your own kids or parenting your spiritual kids. Spiritual kids meaning if you have someone who you're investing in spiritually, maybe helping them learn how to read the Bible, helping them grow in their faith. What are the things that we can learn about how we come alongside that process of, of helping other people grow? I love what John 1.14 says. It says the word, meaning Jesus, became flesh. He dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I don't even know what that means, full of grace and full of truth. But there's something in there that we need to realize as we parent, as we lead, as we disciple, as we develop. You know, if we want some parenting tips, we want some discipleship tips, the first thing is this, so truth, so truth. You know, the story emphasizes the failure of Eli as a parent in not disciplining his sons. If you want to be a good parent, if you want to be a good discipler, you need to speak truth to your kids, even when it's not fun to hear. There needs to be consequences for actions. Proverbs says to train up your child in truth so that they know the right way to go. It says to discipline them for spiritual and moral development. It's not very, you know, popular, but Proverbs 23, 13, and 14 says, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Let's get controversial. Pop psychology hates this. You might have strong opinions. I'm not telling you to hit your kid with a stick, all right? 
So don't put words in my mouth, say, Pastor Bill told us we should beat our kids. That's not what I'm saying. I will say this, though. Discipline for misbehavior, however your family defines that within biblical what's appropriate, okay? That doesn't mean you punch them in the face. Your goal or the, the discipline here for misbehavior is a biblical expectation. Your kids cannot be, Lord, it can't be a Lord of the Flies situation. There need to be consequences for actions. We sow truth. The goal here is not venting your parental anger. No, that's also sinful. The goal is not behavior modification because your kid is scared of you. No, the goal is character development and training. The idea is that our kids must learn that bad decisions have consequences, and so we're trying to equip them for life. Do you hear what I'm saying here? I don't want you to leave here and say, Pastor Bill said I should pick my own switch, right? That's not what I'm saying but I'm saying that you need to have consequences as your kids are growing up for when they misbehave. And those consequences should be prayed over and sought over. You sow truth, but you also sow grace. Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. We are called to be people of grace because look, God is the perfect parent. He parents us perfectly and we're still a mess. And you know what he offers us? Grace. He offers grace. You need to know, and I mean know, that the law cannot accomplish what only grace can accomplish. And here is the paradox of this, that we're called to be full of truth, but also full of grace. Because grace alone can actually change our hearts. The law cannot change our hearts. The law is like a fence to keep people from becoming a train wreck, but grace is the only thing that actually can change a heart in the long haul. You following me? As parents, we need to be people of truth, but also people of grace. Not, not 70% truth, 30% grace. No, 100% truth and 100% grace. And I'm not claiming that I have it figured out. And the third parenting tip is this. Be what you want your kids to become. You look at Eli's sons and you can't help but wonder, what was Eli like? If this is what his kids were like, what was Eli like? I mean, so much of parenting, so much of discipleship is modeling. Do you want your kids to manage their money? They have to see you managing yours. Do you want your kids to, to not scream? Don't scream. Do you not want your kids to punch walls when they get upset? Don't punch walls. Do you want your kids to engage with a community of believers as an adult? Engage with the community of believers more than once a month. And don't skip for every other thing that your kid wants to do. As you sow, so will you reap. Do you want your kids to grow up reading the Bible and praying? Let them see you reading the Bible and praying. Model what you want in your kids. It's one of the best things that you can do. But here's the bad news. None of it's a promise. See, we're going to realize in a couple chapters that Samuel, his kids, are just as wicked as Eli's. And so you could do all the right things. You could be the perfect parent. You could be the perfect balance of grace and truth. Not a balance, a fullness of both. And your kids can still reject the Lord. Or you could have the worst parents on the planet. And you could follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Think about Mikey White Shoes, all right? These are principles. They're not rules. 
And just because you love Jesus doesn't mean you won't have problems. It doesn't mean that, you know, your kids are going to grow up and they're going to be awesome. But these are still good ideas for life. We sow to the spirit, not the flesh. That's the best decision we can make in this process, okay? And so as we look at the life of Eli, we look at the life of Samuel, the example that we learn from them is don't make your kids your idol. And sow to the spirit, sow to the spirit. And when your kids do something that needs to be corrected, correct it. Don't hide behind grace. But when your kids show that humility to repent, show grace. How do you know what to do? I don't know. But I do know this. Jesus always opposed the proud and gave grace to the humble. When someone approached him with pride, he gave him truth. And when somebody approached him with brokenness or if they were already worn down and they were like that smoldering wick, he never snuffed it out. He gave him grace. And so the best rule of thumb there is that. All right? Anybody have any questions? Because I don't want you to leave here and misconstrue what I said. You can ask a question. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not afraid. What'd you say? Oh, well, how big of a, you got to let them pick their own switch. Googie, we just. Anybody? Yes, Scotty. Yes. Yeah. So when we think about wisdom, do you hear what Scotty said? He said, how is reaping and sowing different from like an Eastern perspective of karma? So when you look at the book, the wisdom literature of the Bible, you know, that's Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, the book of Job. Um, you think about Proverbs. Proverbs makes everything sound like a formula. Do this and this will happen. Do this and this will happen. Do you know what book follows Proverbs? Job. So the point is this. How does Job begin? Here's a guy who did everything right. And what happens? His life falls apart. Proverbs, wisdom is good advice for life. It's the biblical definition is knowledge applied. It's skills for living. They're not promises. Just because you raise up a child in the way doesn't mean he's not gonna depart from it, okay? But it is a good principle for living. But at the end of the day, the law cannot change us. And God is not a pagan God where we put in the quarter and we pull the switch and then we get what we deserve. That's not, no, God is, if he gave us what we deserve, we would all get death. He gives us grace all the time. And so when we parent, when we disciple, we take those principles because we know they're good. It's like having a fence in your backyard. We know that they're good. We know that they will push towards a direction and we're called to do that like guide rails on a highway. But at the end of the day, only the gospel can change someone. And what that means is that when we do all the right things and life doesn't turn out the way we want it to, we can't get mad at God. We need to thank God for grace. And we need to repent of the fact that we've treated him like he's an idol and a pagan God. Because that's how paganism works, right? I give this, God gives back. But that's not how God works. What did we say last week? Psalm 115.3, the Lord is in heaven. He does as he pleases. Does that make sense based upon what Scotty asked? Any other question? Yes, Gina. Oh, well, Job's up right there after Ecclesiastes, right? Whatever. Anyway, the point is this. Yeah. 
I'm not too proud to admit when I'm wrong. The point is that Job is included not as a narrative, but is included as the wisdom lit. So in the Hebrew structure of the Bible, Job is part of the wisdom literature. It's in the wisdom literature of yours as well, as opposed to being in a narrative, okay? Thank you, Gina. I appreciate you always correcting me. Such a sinner. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. God, we are not parents who've got it figured out. We're not disciplers who've got it figured out. But you do. Help us to operate in the shadow of your grace. Help us to strive to live by your truth. But to remember that at the end of the day, we will fail. And that's okay. Because Jesus is our victor. And in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. So let us cling to that. In your name we pray. Amen.